Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited about the guests that we have today. You know, I think that they're not the typical traditional entrepreneur that you would think of, but nonetheless, incredible what he has been able to do with his company. Uh, and we're going to be learning a lot about building, scaling, racing uh, through several financing rounds, also to the discipline that he basically, you know, like really experienced where he was in the army and how he's applying that to us, the way that he's building his business. But again, we're going to be very inspired with today's episode. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Socrates Rosenfeld. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, thank you so much for having me on, man. It's a real pleasure. So born in D.C., but growing up in Boston. So tell us about your upbringings. Oh, man, we would need a whole nother show for that one, Alejandro. My, uh, my name is any indication. My, my, my ethnic background and how I got here is a wild one. I was born in Washington, D.C. Uh, my mother was a very young mom. She was in college at the time at American University. Sh she's originally from Indonesia. Uh, her, her mother is from Egypt uh, and of Greek ethnicity. My grandfather uh, is, uh, grew up in the jungles of Sumatra. Uh, so I'm I'm uh, I'm just really grateful to be here in the U.S. Um, and then grew up in Boston, where I had a, uh, a, a very interesting childhood, uh, and then graduated from Newton South High School, and then that's really kind of where my life story began. Uh, I went to West Point in uh, in 2000 and graduated in 04. So I know I fast forward through my childhood, but. Uh, what 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 got you into the whole you know army and West Point and and all of this? Great question. I, I um as much as I want to say it was because of uh, you know patriotism and and service to my country. I think that was a, a part of it, but not really the real reason why I went. I went because I I've always wanted to do something different. Uh, I never really liked to follow the the crowd, and uh, I like the sense of adventure and challenge and the unknown, and that's really what. West Point presented to me. Um, there wasn't another person from my high school who had ever gone to that school, so there wasn't a lot of resource for me. And uh, I went um, not knowing really what I was getting myself into. And uh, that the first year and extending into the the remaining three years was was quite the experience for me. I, I you know I didn't give myself so much credit uh, up until this point, but I think looking back as an eighteen year old kid. 
not knowing too much, I, I, um, I guess my instinct, Alejandro knew that I, I, I wasn't going to go to where I wanted to go, uh, without really kind of changing my course. Um, I think if I went to a quote unquote normal institution, I maybe, uh, it wouldn't have worked out so well. I knew I needed some discipline and, and the challenge and that's what West Point afforded to me. So then out of all things, you know, when, when you end up uh, joining the army, I mean, why helicopters out of all things? Yeah. That's these great questions. And it's funny. I try to think of these reasons of why I did these certain things. And I think, uh, I didn't have a clear understanding as to why, um, like most people when they're 18, 19, 20 years old, you, you chase the success, you chase the achievement, you chase the status. And for me, that's what West Point was. It was a very elite school and hard to get into and said, uh, I said, okay, let me try that. And then when you're there, you realize, okay, what, you know, you're a high ranking student, where do all the high ranking students go? And, and, um, you get to select your, your branch. And, uh, you know, everybody was saying flying helicopters was, was very hard to, to get into. And so if you have a chance, you might as well do it. And that's why I did it again. No family members ever flew helicopters. I didn't even know what an Apache helicopter was or looked like. And at the age of 21, I decided to go and, and, and try this. And, uh, I've said this in the past, but at the time I was chasing the should, I was chasing what everybody was telling me I should be doing with my life. Uh, and I, was no, I wasn't really giving any thought into what I wanted to do. And so to answer your question, why I got into helicopters was that's what everybody told me I should be getting into. And um, fortunately, I was, you know, I had a, just enough of a class ranking to be able to qualify for, for helicopters. And um, after graduating from, from West Point, I went down to Fort Rucker, Alabama for flight school. And, That was a whole nother chapter of, my God, what did I get myself into? I have no idea what I'm doing. And uh, you learn along the way, not unlike entrepreneurship. And um, learning to fly a helicopter was one of the most challenging, coolest experiences of my life. Wow. Definitely sounds cool. That's for sure. Uh, and obviously, when, when you went into the Army and, and you were there for about seven years, I mean, you were deployed on missions like... Uh, Korea, Iraq. So uh, seven years and these types of missions give also the opportunity to, to go through different experiences, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly too. And, uh, and obviously, you know, um, that kind of like uh, left you in a way that when you came back to, to the civilian world, you know, it was, uh, it was also tough, no? the, the, the adjusting to what was going on here, given, you know, what you had experienced, whether it was losing friends or seeing people, you know, uh, dying, you know, around you. Uh, but, but tell us about, you know, that, that readjustment into the civilian world and, and why did you say, you know what, I think it's time for me to, to, to perhaps, you know, like explore something different in my life. It's a great question. I, I uh, spent, you know, seven years responsible for the, the, the lives of other people, literally their lives. And that is a very um, intense responsibility. You know, I'm, I'm not a parent, but all the parents that are listening, you know, it, it, you're, you're responsible for a life that's intense. It's not, it's not uh, a, a chore or an errand or, or a job. It's a 24-7 um, responsibility. And 
So from the time I was 22 years old to the time I left the service at, at the age of 29, I was um, trained and conditioned to make sure that uh, every decision I made was through the lens of life and death. When you get into a helicopter and you have to make sure that your engines work, that's a, that's a, that's a decision on life and death. When you have uh, a mission and you have to evaluate the risk um, and send your, your, your soldiers out there, and you have to make sure that is that plan correct? Did you look at all the angles? Did you anticipate what the enemy was going to do? That is life and death. And you know you take that as table stakes in the military because you know no other way. And suddenly I I got off the ride, and you know you ever walk in the airport, Alejandro, and you see like that those conveyor belts that you you walk to you know you, you put your luggage on and it's, you take a couple of steps and you've gone a hundred meters. Well, that's yeah. what I was on yeah. in the military. And then suddenly, you know, I got off and that wasn't a conveyor belt, you know, in the airport that was moving at the equivalent of what seemed to be hundreds of millions of miles per hour. And suddenly I was off the ride and I'll never forget leaving Iraq and getting on an airplane, leaving combat and landing at, you know, some airport in Ireland and getting off and going to the Starbucks and waiting in line with a bunch of civilians and how thin that line was between the world I was in and the world that I was coming home to. And so, you know, you, you, if you've ever changed jobs or changed locations or, uh, you know, got off there after a bad breakup or just change in general is stressful, but to go from a highly kinetic, environment that is combat to come back home was an adjustment for me. And like most military veterans, it took me a while to fully come back home. Uh, physically, I was home. Physically, I was back in Boston. Physically, my body felt okay. But emotionally, I wasn't home. I couldn't connect with my loved ones like I wanted to. I couldn't connect with my friends like I wanted to. I couldn't just a approach normal daily activities like getting ready to go to school and preparing for an exam. I always met everything with what's known as hypervigilance or extreme intensity. And that is a sign of, of post-traumatic stress. And we all have that at, at, at varying levels. And so for me, I, I struggled to, to come back home fully until I, I started to consume cannabis. Cannabis allowed me to process the things that I had gone through in a safe space. Uh, um, I was able to hold the, the space for myself. I was able to show myself love and self-empathy and non-judgment. And through that time, Alejandro, I was able to really start to melt away my experience in the military and come back home to my true self. And uh, plant medicine, particularly cannabis, really helped me find that again. And uh, I, I, I will remain forever grateful to this plant for truly bringing me back home. And it was then that I really started to get very interested in this plan, started to talk to other military veterans and started to realize that this was not the only way, but a very effective way of bringing soldiers back from combat experience into a peaceful healing environment and, and really truly coming, helping them come back fully home. And uh, I'm, I'm truly grateful that I, I first consumed my first uh, cannabis fall of 2011 and i haven't looked back since 
I mean, in, in, in this case for you, I mean, the, the adjustment, you know, ended up being quite successful because you went and studied your, your program, your master's program at the MIT. So, I mean, one of the best universities in the world to do, to do your, your, your graduate program. So, so in this case, you know, for you, you know, after that, as they say, ideas, they are like dormant, you know, they're, they're there, they're incubating, even though we don't know that they are there, but obviously they are. And in your case, you did a little bit of, uh, of, of time at McKinsey after MIT. And, and it's interesting because I've met a lot of consultants that uh, were at McKinsey and then they went and, and, and built their own companies. And I find that, that you have two things that really played for you, to your advantage, right? Even though you were not the typical Silicon Valley type of entrepreneur, I think that there were two things that played for you. One was the discipline that you could apply and the other experiences from the army. But now, you know, that we're talking about the, 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 the time at McKinsey is being able to grab a big problem and then, and then perhaps you break it down into small problems and then you tackle each one of those. So in this case, being at McKinsey, how do you think it has helped you for being an entrepreneur later on? Oh, that's a great question. Usually people ask me about the military, how did it prepare you? But very few people ask me about McKinsey and it, it really did help me a lot. Number one, it taught me how to communicate. You know, as a pilot, you're taught how to communicate. On the radio, there's a certain cadence. There are certain words you use. There's a certain tempo to things. Uh, and in business, there is a very similar cadence and tempo to business communication. So how do you take, you know, something very, very complex, as you had mentioned, Alejandro, and break that down into really actionable steps and, and put it into a logical plan? I think, you know, McKinsey and other management consulting firms do a wonderful job at, at teaching their, their associates and, and their employees how to take very uncertain, ambiguous problems where there's a lot of dirty data or a lot of assumptions. And how do you get to an answer with certainty? And to be honest with you, I learned that I, I'd say I got my maybe my PhD in that at McKinsey, but you get that in the army as well. You have limited resources. There's an unknown risk, and it, 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 no one knows wh where the enemy is at all times. And so, how do you take the end state, and that is, you know, a, a mission accomplishment is, you know, taking a, a certain piece of terrain on the battlefield, or finding a, you know, a, a high value target or something like that out on the battlefield. How can you take that end state, and then from that end state back plan? to the current state and then come up with a real logical plan that seems to work. And I think, I think you nailed it, Alejandro. That is, at the end of the day, that's how you go from idea to execution. That's how you go from a, assumption to actually assigning risk or uncertainty to those uh, unknowns. Um, and then from there, hopefully you have a clearer landscape and um, a, a, a quote unquote battlefield, if you will, to run with that analogy. To, to make a decision that, you know, uh, gets the capture of the most amount of reward with minimizing the amount of, of risk. And so my time at McKinsey trained me to think that way on my feet over and over and over again. And to see that now translate into how we look at and solve problems uh, here at Jane, I think there's an absolute tie and linkage to my time at, at, at McKinsey, and I'm grateful for it. So then let's talk about idea and execution, as you were saying. Uh, let's talk about Jane Technologies, which is your, your baby, you know, your company. Let's talk about that moment where you realize that it's time to bring it to life. You know, what was that 
What was that moment like, and 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 how did you go about actually bringing it to life? So the the, the first moment was the idea, and I remember. I was at on a study at McKinsey and I was studying uh, all these different e-commerce strategies. And I realized that whether it was in shoes or food or apparel or places to stay or flowers, these, these platforms provided a very patterned way to shop for consumers. And that way worked. You can search for stuff that's very... Uh, ambiguous or very specific. You can read reviews from real customers who have used that product or stayed at that place. You can get recommendations from data-driven algorithms. You can compare by price or uh, various things like that. And ultimately, what you were given was real purchasing power. And I remember um, it was my wife's birthday in 2015, and I and I said the idea popped into my head: What if we could do this in cannabis? And I called um, my brother. I talked to my wife, obviously, you know, in the middle of a birthday dinner. Uh, she loved that. And usually these people in my life have told me no uh, and because they love me. They say, no, nah, it's not a good idea. Or I don't think that's going to work. And here I had people in my life who were actually telling me that's a pretty good idea. And that was the first time I had heard that. So I was still a consultant at McKinsey. And, and at night, early in the morning, on the weekends, I'd be putting together a business plan but really kind of a side project. And it wasn't until I talked to um, our first uh, investor and uh, I knew nothing, Alejandro. I knew nothing. I didn't have, uh, I was almost embarrassed to ask people for help. Now I know, you know, closed mouths don't get fed. You have to ask for help as an entrepreneur. But I didn't know that at the time. And so I kind of approached him and said, hey, you have some money you've invested before. Would you ever give me money uh, for an idea like this. And he said, yes, but when are you going to leave McKinsey? And that was the first time it was ever real for me. And I said, you know, at the end of the year, and that was in, in three months. And uh, he said, okay, I'll give you the check. But to, to say that I was not terrified, not terrified, but I was scared uh, leaving my job, leaving a, a, a very, you know, quote unquote, well-known job, respected job at McKinsey, good salary, was just starting my career. And I remember talking to my wife saying, here's this investor. He wants me to go full time on this. Should I do this? And she said, uh, if you don't do this, when will you ever do it? So um, I took the leap in, uh, in, in January 1st, 2016. And uh, I was making no money for the first time in my life ever since I was 18, really. And uh, I was the most happy I I was I have ever felt in my life in a very long time. I was free to pursue that which I loved, to pursue that which gave me energy and light and life. And um, I remember, you know, you eat you, all the all the entrepreneurs have their story of eating peanut butter and jelly, and you know, <laughs> eating uh, almonds for breakfast and lunch. But um, I really, uh, it's not you don't do that for the story. You do that because you don't care about anything else. All yeah. you care about is growing that idea and pursuing that because you believe in it. And for me, I, I will, will never forget that lesson. That feeling again, fills my heart and my soul. I know that I must pursue that because essentially that is, you know, that's, that's kind of destiny talking to me. I, I really believe that. And so uh, taking that leap 
uh, was terrifying. And it was the greatest thing that I've ever done for myself uh, up until this point, truly. I love it. And for me, by the way, it was rice and beans. So <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> so, so let me ask you this then, Socrates, for the people that are listening to really get it, like what, what ended up being the business model of, of Jane? In its most simplest form, can we make shopping for cannabis as simple and as straightforward and as trusted as, as shopping for anything else in this world? Can you take, uh, you know, the thousands of fragmented small retailers situated across 30, 40 state markets with different products and different naming conventions and different tax structures? And can you really create a thread that ties all these disparate systems and stakeholders together, package that up in a way that for number one, for the consumer, they can feel like they're shopping on an Amazon But instead of an Amazon where products are getting shipped directly to you from Amazon, instead what we do is we take your, your order and we push that across the local markets to you and so that you're actually ordering a product from a local retailer. And then you flip that and that's supporting local retailers by providing them a really powerful e-commerce technology that they can use that takes all of their offline inventory and pushes that online fully automated. And if you can do that on both sides of the market, really what we think we've cracked into is the new age of retail, and the new age of e-commerce. And that is the convenience and curation of an Amazon, but the locality and um, kind of uh, uh, convenience of a DoorDash, of an Uber Eats. And that's what we've been able to combine here in, in the cannabis industry. And it's really, really exciting. Amazing. So in terms of capital, how much capital have you guys raised to date? Uh, we, we recently just closed our Series C, um, and we've raised now to date about 130 million. So what was that progression like? I mean, you've, you've done you know, a bunch yeah. of rounds. So obviously, yeah. starting with the check of, uh, of that individual that got you to do the leap of faith to all the way to the last round. I mean, how have you experienced those, those different financing cycles? Yeah, I, I, not a lot of people know this, but going into our Series A, which we raised about $6 million, the first $1.5 million came from a convertible note. I, I took me a year to raise that note. $25,000 checks, we raised $1.7 million. And um, I didn't have a big fund to go to. I, I really started from my network in the military. And there are, you know, a, a dozen or so military veterans who are my friends who I talked to about this. And they said, Sock, man, if this is helping you, you seem so passionate about this, man, I'm going to give you a check. Uh, and I believe in you, man, and, and go and do it. And don't just, you know, don't just do it for yourself or Jane or for us, but do it for the for the veteran community. And um, I, will, I will never forget that, really, that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm forever grateful for that. And so it, it went from very small checks to friends and family to people, Alejandro, who didn't know anything about cannabis or technology, but knew about me. I said, okay, Sock, if you're going to do this, I trust you that you're going to do everything you can to make this a success. And uh, again, I, I am forever grateful to those people. And then, uh, you know, uh, Series A closed with, uh, I would argue, friends and family. And then um, that got us to be able to, you know, get into about 100 stores. And then we, we started to, to raise our Series B. And then um, it was a little bit more bigger names, but still no one knew who they were. 
very focused on cannabis, um, uh, cannabis specific investors. And we raised um, about 20, 21 million from there, which was great uh, back in 2019, in the summer of 2019. And that got us to about 800, 900 dispensaries, 14 state markets. And then, boom, the pandemic hit in early 2020. And at the time, we thought we could raise another $30, $40 million Series C, but everything pushed to online and cannabis became a, an essential business. And, you know, every, every startup, Alejandro, has to get lucky in terms of, I think you make your own luck with positioning and timing. But it was just a, a perfect storm of, you know, unfortunately, it had to do with the, the, the pandemic. Um, but really what it, fortunately for, for the industry, what it did, it, it pushed everybody to order online. And from there, we went from doing about $100 million in gross merchandise um, value to, uh, in, in 2019, to $1.5, $1.6 in 2020. Wow. And then this year in 2021, we're going to do about three and a half billion. So it just keeps growing and growing. And then uh, we decided because of that growth, we needed to prepare for the, you know, it basically took five years of growth and crammed it into a year. And most recently we raised our Series C, which we closed in July of 2021, led by um, Honor Ventures and Jeff Hausenbold. And uh, still the same premise, you know, um, trust in the team trust in the mission, trust in the technology, just bigger checks and uh, really more sophisticated investors who are, are, are very helpful for us into thinking how, how we can accelerate our business and position ourselves for the next chapter of growth. So it's been, um, it's pretty nuts to say that we've raised 130 million. If I take myself back to 2016, asking people to, for, for $25,000 checks, and, you know, I will say this because there are entrepreneurs listening and founders listening. That feeling that you get for that first $25,000 check that I ever got, uh, I don't think anything will ever match that feeling. Even $100 million, which is a lot of money, you know, the, the, that feeling is still the same there. It's not any bigger with more money. Um, so enjoy every step of the, the process. That's what I've come to realize. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's amazing because I'm getting flashbacks too from that first check. And, and I'm, right. and I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. And then in your case, I mean, your um, background is not the typical, you know, hyper growth, you know, founder background. I mean, right. obviously coming from a completely different, you know, uh, vertical or segment or industry, you know, here you are coming in and you had to go about building your own network too, you know, starting from, from, from nothing. So how did you go about like really building those relationships, whether it would be for fundraising, whether it would be for hiring or for perhaps, you know, partnerships for distribution? Some of my teammates are probably laughing at this moment, but I, I will, I can't do this anymore, uh, but I used to be able to, I would take a call with anyone and everyone. I would, uh, any opportunity I could take to pitch my business, I would. Even if I, you know, I didn't know that this person could be helpful, like even an insurance broker, for instance, you know, or a banker or an accountant, it didn't matter because um, I told myself that what I was doing was I was planting seeds. And you use the word patience is a, is a critical component to the entrepreneurial journey. And I said, okay, nothing wonderful grows overnight. Beautiful plants, you know, don't 
in here in California, trees, they don't grow overnight. They take time. So let me plant the seeds today. And um, uh, that was kind of my mentality. And ultimately, though, what I realized, Alejandro, is that um, in this, you know, you, you, you know this as someone who has started his own business. Other entrepreneurs will recognize who's for real and who's not, in my opinion. And um, uh, you, you can only understand who's for real if they've gone through the experience. And so what I was trying to do was just be as authentic as I possibly could about where I was. I didn't lie and said, you know, I had started other tech companies. You should bet on me. But what I was able to be honest about, and it was very easy, was my passion around cannabis. My passion, because it helped me. My passion around leading people and teams, because I had done that before. And ultimately, my, my passion around shaping what the future of e-commerce and what the, the future of this cannabis industry would look like. And I think, um, you know, I didn't have a product early on to sell, but what I could sell was my passion and my belief uh, and my, my authenticity. And that's something that you can't really, really fake. So I think that resonated early on with mentors and advisors and entrepreneurs and investors who are willing to, 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 to see that in me and willing to take a shot and, and, and support me. And so, you know, if you don't have anything but yourself, that's what you should be, should be selling. And, and I truly believe that. And that doesn't change today. Here I am, right? I, I, uh, Jane is much bigger than I am, Alejandro. It's 100 employees, much smarter engineers and designers and salespeople than I, I, I could ever be. But my role as, as a CEO is to be authentic. And, and I just have to bring my authentic self. And, you know, I think that's what resonates with a lot of people. And I think, at least for me, that's what resonates to me when I hear other people speak, is just to be themselves and not to try to, to, to follow any template. Because I think if you can do that as a human being, and particularly as a founder CEO, then you will create a company that is itself and not a copycat of another. And um, that's something that we, we take very seriously here at Jane. And we make mistakes. We don't get everything right. I make mistakes. I don't get everything right as a human being. But man, we, we are our authentic self. And we're trying to be as genuine as we possibly can. And, um, you know, whether we are successful or not, however we measure that, at least we did this our way. And that's the way I've always approached it. And I think that's resonated with a lot of investors. and. I think, quite frankly, is extended to the Jane brand, um, and it's resonated with the rest of the market as well. Wow, that's very profound, Socrates. So, so let me ask you this: Imagine you go to sleep tonight, and you wake up in a world five years later where the vision of Jane is fully realized. What does that world look like? It's much better than waking up to a you know a bunch of emails. Hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. You know, it's it's a very healthy cannabis ecosystem. I'm a big, um, big on this ecosystem uh, tip lately, Alejandro, where an ecosystem like a, like a lake or a pond or a forest, it's balanced, right? There's not one big winner that's taking up everything and everybody else is kind of playing on the, the, the ancillary. Uh, everybody is successful here. There's a lot of value to be created here. There's diversity in a very healthy ecosystem. It's not the same tree over and over and over again, right? You walk through the forest, you see a bunch of different bushes and trees, et cetera. That's, that's what we want. So not just one big brand, not one big retailer 
hundreds and thousands of different brands and retailers all living on this ecosystem. Uh, I think that's what we want. I think for the plant itself to protect the integrity of this plant, this is not beer. This is not cheeseburgers. This is not a pair of sneakers. This is a medicine that helps people, whether they want to believe it or not. Some people think, oh, it's just recreational. But you, you, you smoke a joint at a party. You become relaxed. You're, you're more social. You uh, take an edible. You go for a walk with your dog. You, you, you look at sunset. Sure, some people might say that's recreation. For me, that's on the spectrum of wellness and well-being. Uh, that is that is healing, in my opinion. And so, you know, as a society, can we view cannabis through that lens and not through the lens of just some commodity product that's just like everything else? And then ultimately for the consumers, uh, number one, first and foremost, the, the, the people who are put in prison for this plant uh, are now out of prison. And in my opinion, should be given first access to perhaps coming back into this industry in a legal way because for the, you know, not, not everyone, there were some bad actors for, for, for a lot of people that were thrown in prison for cannabis. They were probably coming from black and Brown communities uh, that were uh, unfairly targeted. Let's make that right as a society. That, that's what I would like to see in five years. And then ultimately for the consumers who need access to this plant, whether that's, you know, senior citizens that need topical cream to rub on their arthritis, or terminally ill patients with, uh, you know, cancer or AIDS that need some kind of relief in their transition from this world, from parents who have, you know, children with epileptic seizures, from soldiers who have post-traumatic stress, everyone who needs access to this plant, do they get it? Not just in the U.S., not just in Canada, but around the world. Uh, if we can do those three things, we can protect the integrity of the businesses, protect the integrity of the, the consumer, and ultimately protect the integrity of the plant, then we will have built a healthy, diverse, balanced ecosystem globally. And I think if we can do that, we can bring a lot of love in this world. And, um, you know, that's the mission that we're on here at Jane. I love it. I love it, Socrates. And one question that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, Imagine if I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time, obviously, with all this wealth of knowledge that you've been able to accumulate over the past, you know, five years or so, building and scaling the company. And I bring you back to that moment, you know, with, with being able to speak to that young Socrates that is in McKinsey. And right at that point where that younger Socrates, you know, has that check on the table and he's looking at that check. Imagine you were able to give yourself one piece of advice before launching the company. What would that be and why, you know, given what you know now? I love this show, man. You asked some great questions. This is what I would tell myself. Life is not to be endured, but to be experienced. And all of it, the good times, the bad times, the hard times, the easy times, experience it. Don't just endure it to the next stage. Experience all of it because eventually all the dots connect. And if you can remain present and truly experience, you have lived a full, rich life. And you will probably have learned some things along the way. And so for me, that, that, is, that is what I would tell myself to embrace the experience. Don't just endure it. 
That's fantastic. Socrates, so for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and, and say hi? Oh, man, we love hearing from everyone, good, bad, otherwise. Please feel free to reach out to us across our social channels at iHeartJane. Uh, and then uh, if you want to email us directly, we love hearing from you. Info at iHeartJane.com. Please feel free to reach out to us anytime. Amazing. Well, Socrates, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a great show, man. Appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.